Good morning. I greet you in Jesus' name. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where I'm going to be pulling my thoughts from this morning. In my Bible, at the beginning of this chapter, it has titled, The Perfect Will of God. That's not my title, but we'll get to my title eventually. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good, an acceptable and perfect will of God. These verses here are a pivot point in the book of Romans. And it is clear in these verses that there is a way that a Christian should live and act. Just because we're saved by grace does not give us a free pass to live however we want to live. But that there is a way that we need to live that is pleasing to God. God desires for us to take on His nature and live and breathe and start changing into His image that relates to His character. There's a word here in this first verse, and that word is, it's an important word, it's therefore. It serves as a bridge, and that bridge connects us with Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. That connection then happens between those 11 chapters and then goes on into chapter 12 and 16. And this tiny bridge, the word therefore, is that connection between those two. Romans 1 through 11, we have instruction. In chapters 12 through 16, we have the application. We could also say that the first 11 chapters are doctrine, and then we have duty, We could say the first half is about the mind, and then the second is about the heart, the hands, and the feet, and the eyes, and what what it takes to put it into practice. So those have to be combined, put together, to become our behavior. Apostle Paul 
I think he wanted to persuade. He wanted to motivate. Sometimes we use the, the analogy of lighting a match under our feet, putting some fire behind it, giving some motivation. And that motivation is given in his word, I beseech. This word beseech is to beg for urgently or anxiously, to entreat and to implore. In my, in my own words, I think of what can I do to persuade you? Paul says, I beseech you. So this motivation, I beseech you therefore, brethren, I think is a sum of the motivation by the mercies of God. And I find it interesting when I was preparing this that I didn't know the devotional in the Sunday school would be talking about the mercies of God. It's God's grace and mercy that Paul had just laid out here in the first 11 chapters. And that we find it presented in the rest of this book. Mercies, if you see there, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Mercies is plural. It, re- it represents all of God's mercies. I thought too, Dwight, it would be interesting to know what all these mercies would be. And I named a few, or I put together a few. God has more than just one mercy. But God's mercies are very personal and individualized. Blessings, strength, protection, assurance, guidance, loving kindness, consolation, support, and spiritual spiritual gifts. And yes, we could add a lot more. There's the natural part, physical part. You ever think about the air you breathe? Something I do, I don't even think about. But God sustains the air that we breathe to give us life. Is that His mercies? God freely gives these, and they can be ours. If we make Him part of our life and commit to His ways. I think also God's mercy, it includes giving a careful thought to where we were once before, where we came from, the pit that we were in of sin and darkness. What we deserve for that. We do not deserve the mercies of God, but God offers them freely to us. Looking further into that verse, speaks of 
presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. It's building on an example from the Old Testament. The sacrificial, what the sacrifice the priest did as he did his sacrifice. An Old Testament priest would take the sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, and he would slay that sacrifice. He would kill it. There was no longer life. The blood was drained. That sacrifice was dead. And then he would lay it on the altar and he would have fairly detailed instructions given by God how this was to be done. And it was to be presented to God in this way, this manner. This is what God required. If it was not done in that way, it was an unacceptable sacrifice. It was displeasing to God. God would reject it. This made it that the priest could not make up his own plan or his own agenda for how he felt like he could come to God with his kind of sacrifice. Remember the account of Cain and Abel? God accepted one sacrifice and God rejected one sacrifice. Paul is saying that required requires that you and I we present not an animal sacrifice on the altar, but we take our life and we place it on the altar. It is totally given to God. It's Hands off now. God, it is yours. It's not my life anymore. As long as you have life and breath in this life, this living sacrifice needs to be God's sacrifice. The difference between a dead sacrifice and a living sacrifice is that the living sacrifice can crawl off the altar. As we surrender to God and we stay on that altar, that, I think, is when we can use our full potential and God's full potential of what a living sacrifice is. Again, another example we have in the Old Testament is Abraham and Isaac. The relationship that Isaac had with Abraham must have been one that, I don't know if I can use words to describe it, but it was close, a close, very close connection. For God to tell Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, up into the mount to offer him as a sacrifice. And you know, we get the picture as from children's books that Isaac was probably a young man which he was a young man but we always get the mental picture at least I do of an 8, 12, 15 year old it's probably more likely that he was 30 some years old 
So obviously Isaac would have had some understanding of of this. But yet Isaac was willing and Abraham was willing. And this was an example of Christ and his sacrifice to us. Present your bodies. The word bodies, I think, represent the entirety of our being. Every inch, every ounce that you are is what it is. This is from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes. It's entirely of your being your mind, your emotions, your will, to be completely yielded to God. That you hold nothing back. 100% placed on the altar before God. I believe it begins with the mind. That your mind is to be given to God. And that is how we understand and believe. What you think on, what you feed on, what you dwell on is going to help shape your mind. Don't allow the encroachments of the world's ideologies to shape your mind. Your mind needs to be given to God. Your eyes are to be given to God. What you look at, what you see, your worldview, what you gaze upon, your ears, are to be given to God. What you listen to, what you allow to come into your mind. Your mouth is also to be given to God. What you say, what you speak, does it glorify God? Your hands are to be completed to God. What do your hands do? in your work, in your play. And your feet are to be given to God as you travel. This is all part of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And then there's a word in there. He adds, holy. A holy sacrifice. I believe this holy means to be set apart for a very special use. To not just be common, mundane, living, but to be set apart from the living cares of this world. To be set apart from the living for the temporal, 
and to be living always for the eternal and for the heavenly and setting our minds on the things above. It means that we live a transcendent life that rises above the muck and the mire of this world and to live with God's purpose and to live with God's direction. I also believe the word holy means pure, being signifying purity, being unstained, not contaminated with the pollutions of the world. But we are called to the pursuit of holiness and godliness. In Leviticus 11, verse 44 and 45, it says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That is the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Have you ever, have you ever entertained the thought that you could fill in the blank? I wish I was skinnier. I wish I was taller or shorter or better looking. Maybe you had a problem with your eyes your hair, your teeth, or whatever it is. That's the physical part. Some of that we can change. Some of that we can't change. But there's a part of us that is the inside Are those things that you would like to change? Would you like to change an impatient spirit? How about a critical tongue? Or envy of those around you? Or a spirit of discontentment? Or lingering resentment? Lust that you can't conquer? What about financial mismanagement? A guilty conscience. Maybe the inability to work with others. Overbearing stubbornness. Quick temper. An ungrateful spirit. Disorganized life. There's a lot more you could probably add. These are traits that come from us as humans, naturally. We all want to change something. Sometimes we don't know quite how and where and what to do. And we dream of something different, better than the person we are. Change is hard. Sometimes that's why you move or change jobs or get a facelift, buy a new car. You hear of people that are in the midlife crisis, they go out and they buy a, used to be a 50000 but it's probably a $100,000 car now. Or they change their career 
And these things are somewhat to temper or feel good, to help them feel good about themselves. But does it really change what is on the inside? It's the outward stuff that trips us up. But it's on the in, stuff on the inside that we can start if we want to get fixed up. Long-held habits can be changed, but it won't happen overnight. Patterns of sin can be broken, but it's going to take more than just a quick prayer. Significance is the growth in your spiritual life. There will be a cost that will come with that. And I believe it's as you want that change, God will help. The Holy Spirit will help. But we have to make a choice. That is step number one if we want to change. As long as you're in this life and life is going well, you may not be tempted to change as quickly. We have a tendency sometimes to cut corners. Maybe fudge on truth. Maybe we're a chronic excuse maker. But if we get to the bottom of it, the root of it, then we can change. And that's where it leads us in this next verse, chapter 2, chapter, chapter 12, or verse 2 of Romans. And this is what got me thinking about this. Understand that this word transformed here in the Greek has the significance of metamorphosis. The last couple of weeks I've been watching the monarch butterflies. How many others like to watch the monarch butterflies? A few of you. I find them somewhat fascinating. And maybe I didn't find them fascinating enough to after I watched a IMAX on them that kind of ran them through their course and what all happens with them. But it's amazing that God created such a small creature as the monarch that probably weighs less than half a gram. These little insects go through a change that transforms them from something small and limited to things of beauty and unlimited boundaries. I remember in school having a caterpillar in a glass jar and it spun its, it was a caterpillar, and it spun its cocoon and sat there and sat there. It's always been my dream to watch one of these things come out. Of course, at that time, I didn't know what butterfly was going to be. I don't remember what color the caterpillar was either, but it was, uh, it sat there and it sat there. And I really had given up on it. Until one day, one of the classmates noticed that, hey, there's a moth in your jar. Here it had 
I guess hatched is the word. <laughs> There's probably a better scientific word for it. But it was dead. And uh, probably from neglect on my part that I didn't free it. Metamorphosis is the process where a caterpillar becomes a butterfly or a tadpole becomes a frog. We also did tadpoles in school as well. And I think if I remember right, the tadpoles started turning into frogs when it was still winter yet and they didn't have a chance to, or any hope to survive. We have some milkweed there at home by our one shed. And the boys were out playing the other day and they were playing with, these were the monarch caterpillars. There was, I don't know, probably about 10 plants that had, I don't know, probably seven, eight caterpillars on them. And they were crawling around. And I still, I went out there and tried to find um, where they would uh, spin their cocoon or... Uh, I can never find it. I did uh, chores for a neighbor and he takes them and he puts them in jars and then they, they're trapped there and then they have to do their cocoon there. But I did find a caterpillar hanging on the underside of a milkweed in its start stage of going into a chrysalis, I think is what it's called. But it looked like he had petered out. I don't know if he didn't have enough energy or what, but he was half sunken and half filled, and that was the extent of it. But my thought was, well, here we go. I found one I could finally watch. And uh, just yesterday, Friday, I think I went and checked, and he's no longer there. He was on the ground. Didn't make it. This gradual change on the inside produces a total transformation on the outside. Caterpillar goes in. If you were to see a caterpillar and you were to say that that caterpillar is going to fly, it's obvious it's not. But caterpillars were born to fly. And that is how metamorphosis comes to play. There's a transformation. God intended it that way. When a caterpillar has been changed into a butterfly, it becomes what God has intended it to be. And I believe that's the same for us. It's God's will that we don't perish and that we be made into His image and bring glory to God. We need to be transformed from a thing of dull, ugly to a thing of beauty. Turn to Romans chapter 8, back a few chapters. I'm going to read verses 26 through 29. Just because once you start reading, it's kind of hard to find a place because I'm even breaking in here. Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, 
For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. For the Spirit itself maketh intercessions for us with groaning, which we cannot utter. And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborns among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestine, then he also called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified them, he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not know? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from that love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or pearl, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor the height, nor the death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is determined that we be like Jesus in the end. And that's in Romans 8:29, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's a story in the year of 1464, a sculpture named Agostino di Ducio, I'm sure I butchered it up. He began working on this huge piece of a flawed marble, intending to produce a magnificent sculpture of the Old Testament prophet for the cathedral in Florence, Italy. He labored for two years and then stopped. Again in 1476, 12 years later, Antonio Rosalino started to work on the same piece of marble in the time and in the time, abandoned it also. And then 1501, a 26-year-old sculpture named Michelangelo was offered a considerable sum of money to produce something with this worthwhile, something worthwhile from this, this enormous block of marble called the giant. As he began his work, he, be, he saw a major flaw near the bottom that had stumped these other sculptures including this is what he said he decided to turn that part of the stone into a broken tree stump that would support the right leg the rest he worked on for four years until he produced this uncomparable David today this 17 foot tall statue stands on display at the Asadinema gallery in Florence where people come from around the world to view it 
More than a masterpiece, it is one of the greatest, the greatest works of art ever produced. It has been said that there is no other statue more perfect. And this is how he did it, in his answers, in his own words. In every block of the marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me. Shaped and perfect in attitude and action, I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison that lovely apparition to reveal to the other eye as mine has seen it. In other words, he cut away everything that didn't look like David. Now, compare that, make an application. We're all being chipped away, worked on. We're not finished yet. We're not perfected. We're not complete. We're all under construction as well. If you ever visit a construction zone, it's usually noisy, it's messy. There's hammering, there's sawing. It's hard to imagine the final results in that state. But God never stops. Because there's work that still needs to be done. If you concentrate on your weakness, you will lose confidence. But if you concentrate on God's faithfulness, you will grow in confidence. I picture God as a sculpture working maybe with a rough piece of marble. Maybe his name is Delvin. It's a hard job because maybe the chunk is marred, misshaped, discolored, cracked in odd places. But God can take his chisel, his hammer, and he can patiently keep working. And sometimes I think maybe he works all day, all week, all year, then he comes back in and maybe some of the things that he had finished are marred again. Who's messing with my statue? It turns out that I'm the culprit. If I want to improve, I got to let God continue to patiently and faithfully keep working. He's not going to quit halfway. God always finishes his project. We must reprogram our minds. That's part of being transformed. Verse 2 of chapter 12 speaks of renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do we get a renewed mind? There's a little equation. T equals time. All the time 
that we have. We do not know how much time we will have. HH equals habits of holiness. This will help us to grow spiritually. Things we do that help cultivate our spirituality, those habits. This helps us to say no to sin. GE, godly encouragement. Those come from those around us, those that are Christians, those that are soldiers that are fighting the battle. This is where we can get mileage. And that combined equals SG, which is spiritual growth. God wants us to change, be transformed into in the image of Christ. The other thing, another thing I find interesting with uh, the monarch caterpillar is that it feeds solely, solely, can't say it, solely <laughs> on milkweed. That's its diet. And I understand that milkweed is toxic. It's poisonous. And therefore, not a, lot of, not a lot of other insects will feed on it. But as that caterpillar feeds on that, takes that toxins in, and it becomes toxic as well to others, and that's somewhat why it doesn't have a lot of predators. And as I thought of that, I thought, what is our diet? What do we feed on? Obviously, God's Word is not toxic, but I think we can use the, maybe the example that As we feed and as we take it in and as we grow, there is evidence that fruit should be born coming forth out of it. And in this way, this toxicity cannot mix with that of the world. It is going to be like water and oil. It's going to separate. Our transformation does not happen by accident doesn't happen overnight the Holy Spirit has to be part of it it takes personal commitment and of course our equation godly encouragement from other Christians this is how we our mind can get renewed and steadfast and as we gaze on Christ Ruth Graham has engraved on her tombstones and on these words, in parentheses, it says, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Do you hear God chipping away? Cutting? Changing things in your life? Another part of the monarch butterfly. I considered bringing some this morning, but I thought that might be a big distraction if I left them loose flying around in here. And then I'd have to catch them. They are a um, an insect. And what has baffled and stumped scientists, they still don't understand what is in the monarch butterfly that makes it do this. But if you understand the cycle of a monarch butterfly, they come, they migrate down to Mexico, 
and then they come up to the U.S. in the spring, February. They start laying eggs in Texas, and they work their way north. And there's the cycle of a monarch is four to six weeks, and they go through multiple cycles till they get to the northern part about August. So the monarch butterflies that you see flying around the day will probably be the ones to migrate to Mexico. And those butterflies will fly how many thousand miles to overwinter in the mountains of Mexico. This is the only way that they can sustain themselves. And this is what baffles the scientists or the, what's the other word, biologists that study these insects. These butterflies hatched up here. They have no clue. They didn't start from there, but they go back and they are the ones that are dormant and then they come back to the U.S. So they're the ones that get to live the longest. They get to live probably nine months, six to nine months, depending on the time frame. If I was going to be a monarch butterfly, that's the one I'd want to be. But the interesting thing is that these butterflies, when they migrate, they can fly as high as 10,000 feet. Think of a little butterfly that's only a half a gram in the altitudes of 10,000 feet. And God putting that little imprint in their brain to go back to Mexico to sustain, to sustain their being. That is the mystery of the butterfly. And I was thinking about that in relation to us as Christians. You know, God keeps working and someday we will be taken to a place of safety as well.